Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, I encourage you to open it with me as we do each week to Exodus chapter 1. If you, have a, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow along in a blue pew Bible in front of you. Uh, you'll find Exodus 1 on page 45. Well, happy new year, happy new decade. Although there's definitely some heated controversy out there, whether a new decade is a start in 2020, it's a start in 2021. I did 37 seconds of intense internet research, <laughs> and I'm firmly siding with the 2020 years until convinced otherwise. So happy new decade, but um, really excited about, really looking forward to what God has in store for Grace Church in 2020 uh, for our faith community here. Really, my prayer above all else is that our vision to make disciples would remain the same, while our passion and our conviction to do so continually grows as we, uh, in all things, keep Christ at the center, right, to know him and make him known. What do we do at Grace Church? We want to know Christ. We want to make him known for our joy, for his glory, and uh, even as we kind of get uh, ready to move into a new year, I uh, just wanted to also just celebrate um, what God has been doing here. Uh, as he, uh, if you um, look around, how he, he has just been steadily growing this faith community at Grace in recent years, and, and I mentioned this on Christmas Eve, but um, I really just think it's worth saying again, there's, there's really nothing flashy we're doing here at Grace Church. Like, if you kind of come, like, we're not just, like, interested in just, like, attracting as many people as possible just for the sake of it. We're not really trying to be overly impressive in what we do and how we do it. We are not attracting consumers. We're trying to make disciples. And yet, when I think we do that uh, with conviction and biblically, that in itself becomes attractive, uh, but that really we're pretty simple here. We're, we're, we're pretty stripped down at the core that uh, with the gospel at the center, we worship, man, we gather, we serve, and we equip others to do the same. And 2019 was a fruitful year in a lot of ways, and with growth there come some challenges like parking, right? Like you noticed that announcement a couple times. The Ridgewood Police has uh, been getting revenue from Grace Church in the last uh, few weeks, and we just need to be mindful um, of that. But, um, and, and space, and some issues, and finding seats, and kids in the hall. Like, there's some challenges with that, but overall it falls under really the umbrella of just celebrating that people are coming to Christ, People are growing deeper in the relationship with Christ, and in all different ways and aspects, there's just a really healthy thing happening here that we want to give God the glory for. Um, and, and just one of those two, if you kind of look down at your bulletin, you kind of have the list of the numbers, the final kind of numbers from uh, 2019, that as of last Sunday, that we hit a surplus, that we exceeded our budget in giving uh, this past year. And, and for the third straight year, that's happened. And, and even since that, on Sunday, the last couple of years, there's even some more giving that came in. And just, uh, we want to acknowledge that we, that we see giving as an aspect of discipleship, right? It's an aspect, a response of worship. And it's, it's just so encouraging to see a church and members and attenders of a church invest in the work of uh, building God's kingdom for his glory. And, and, and going into 2020, we want to celebrate that momentum and kind of continue it moving forward. In fact, uh, the congregation just last month approved a budget for 2020 that's 11% higher than 2019. And uh, I know for Rochelle and I, we're, we sat down, we kind of looked at everything. We said, okay, we're going to increase our giving in 2020 to Grace Church by 11%, right? If, I, if I'm going to lead a church that's going to expect that to come from the church, we want to step into that. We want to do that as well. And again, just 
try and steward and step confidently into 2020. And then uh, from a ministry standpoint, to align our staff in such a way that can accommodate the growth and what God is doing here. And so most probably know in the kind of different ways we've communicated, but in case you don't know, um, as of this last week, we've added a staff member, uh, Christy Scarpa, as a women's ministry director. Um, here at Grace Church. Um, I think, I could be wrong, somebody could correct me after, but I think it's the first time in Grace's 75-year history that we have a on-staff women's ministry director here. And, uh, but that's not because Grace had not cared about women's ministry in the past. We, there has just been generations of women leading well, serving well, equipping women well, but uh, we felt the growing conviction to want to bring that on to staff as soon as we could and that this was the year that we had the opportunity to do so. We have... Um, Megan, our children's director, went from part-time to full-time because you might have just seen the mass exodus, speaking of exodus, uh, heading out the doors for kids' worship. Um, we have Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jeff, have you seen this morning as well? He's taking over now Grace Groups. That's kind of a new role for him um, while still attaining the uh, middle school and high school ministry. And so uh, really just across the board, there's a lot of kind of shifting and changing, but we, um, uh, again, want to see that just happen um, at, from a standpoint of stepping into 2020 with confidence, with faith, with anticipation of how God will use this faith community to glorify his name. And, and that this church will be a church that wants to make much of Jesus Christ, not make much of ourselves. And for all the things that do shift around and all the things that do have to change, um, there are, is also a very um, firm amount of things that will never change at Grace Church. And at the top of that list is that when we gather each week, we are going to open and proclaim the word of God. And with that said, we begin a series this morning walking through the book of Exodus and I kind of want to just kind of set the stage for us this morning. We're actually only going to look at a few verses at the very beginning. Uh, but this is going to be a series that we will be in for the next eight to nine months. And uh, it's going to take us right through the summer. And if that seems long to you, I will assure you it's going to feel fast. we got 40 chapters of Exodus to get through in eight to nine months. And um, just for those maybe who are new um, or newer to Grace, uh, you may have picked up on this if you've uh, looked at our website, or if you've kind of been around a while, um, but our primary preaching rhythm here is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expositional preaching through books of the Bible. And uh, we don't, by doing that, think that we're superior in any way to churches that might do uh, what is considered topical preaching instead of verse by verse. Um, in fact, we generally do one to two short topical series uh, a year, including Advent. We just did one on peace. Um, but we do have a strong conviction that expositional preaching through books of the Bible is the most effective way to equip the church, the most effective way for people to know Jesus and make him known and get the whole counsel of God in preaching. And so uh, maybe that word expository, expositional preaching, maybe that's kind of a fancy kind of big word. Um, it's actually pretty simple. Here's an expositional sermon. Here's expository preaching defined. The main point of a passage is the main point of the sermon. The main point of a passage is the main point of a sermon. That's ex expositional preaching. And, and you might think, okay, that sounds very obvious, um, but you would be surprised, and maybe you have experience of hearing a lot of preaching, um, that it uses a verse, but then preaches about something else. That might have an attachment a little bit to the context of the book or the passage that it's coming from, but then it's a sermon based on something else that somebody wants to preach on that they think needs to be told. And so, 
This is, again, what we think is going to equip the church um, most effectively. It's also going to prevent me from just sitting in my office being like, what's our church need to hear? You know what we need to hear? God's word. And it's my job that the main point of every sermon is going to be the main point of whatever passage that we're in. And it ensures that our time together every week is going to be God-focused and gospel-centered. Here's two questions you should ask going into every sermon that you hear, whether here or somewhere else. Two questions you should ask. What's this tell me about God? And second, how does this passage point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Gospel-centered preaching. That before we get to application, what does this mean for me? What do I need to do? How do I need to improve my life? That those two questions should be paramount in our minds. And so every book in the Bible, we've done Mark, we've done Jonah, we've done Philippians, we've done going back, we've done Ephesians, we've done uh, the back half of the book of Genesis. Wherever you are in the Bible, whether in preaching or in your personal study, this question is how does this relate to Jesus Christ? That every page, every verse points to Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to have a graphic on the screen. Um, no matter where you are in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's about the anticipation of Jesus Christ. If you're in the Gospels, it's the manifestation of Jesus Christ. If you're in Acts, it's about the proclamation of Jesus. In the Epistles, it's the explanation of Jesus. In Revelation, it's the consummation of Jesus. So if you're doing your own little Bible study alone, which we encourage, if you're um, sitting under preaching, whether here or somewhere else at a church, these are the ways everywhere you are in the Bible it's going to point to and find its fulfillment in Jesus. And so now, we're going to spend nine months in a book that anticipates Jesus. So that's our preaching ministry in general. Now let me share why um, we're going to do Exodus in particular. I've wanted to do Exodus really since I've started. We've been doing this dance, me and Exodus, just staring each other down. I haven't been ready for it. I haven't been ready for it. But now, I feel like we're ready for it. And it's one of the most foundational books in the Old Testament when it comes to understanding the whole Bible. In, in fact, I would say the four premier foundational books, all of God's word is inspired, but I think four books in the Old Testament are especially important to understand the whole Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, and Isaiah. Probably the four most foundational books in the Old Testament. And the reason why I don't think it's, not just that I think that, but they're the four, four most quoted or referenced in the New Testament. And Exodus unveils the premier act of redemption in the Old Testament. It is the gospel of the Old Testament, if you will, where God's people go from slavery to freedom. And while it contains some of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament, many of you guys know a lot of what happens in Exodus. you got the burning bush, you got the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. My five-year-old can talk a lot about those stories and pretty well in correctly, but what we know about Exodus is generally just in the first 15 chapters where all those really popular stories are. But as I said before, Exodus, it's 40 chapters. What the heck happens after all that good stuff? More good stuff, different good stuff. And what we will find week after week is that this is a book that provides a treasure trove for us in witnessing God's character. Who is God? And one thing I have said on repeat in here since I began preaching regularly at Grace Church is that God's character, who he is, will do more to form and shape and impact your life than any list of self-help will. 
that who God is is more life-changing than any New Year's resolution you currently have or might not have still five days in. I'm not against New Year's resolutions, but nothing will do to change and form your life like God's character will. And this book is just going to allow us to be witnesses for this week after week after week. And so, church, for the next nine months, here are your questions. What's this tell me about God? How does this point me to Christ? And then, why should this shape my life? So, let's go. Again, we're just going to scratch the surface of Exodus this morning. We're going to read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to e- the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse six. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. All right, here's our plan for this morning. Um, Again, just trying to set the stage for this series. Um, We're going to look at the context, the introduction, and then the application of Exodus. So, starting with the context. The context of Exodus. Here's the first thing to know about the book of Exodus. Is that it's not meant to stand alone. It's not meant to be just read and interpreted alone. Exodus is the second volume of a five-volume five series. All right, let me make this more applicable in 2019. It's like the second season of a five-season Netflix series that you just binge-watched over Christmas break. Okay, so you have Moses. He's going to be the central human character throughout Exodus. He's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so Exodus should be read and studied in light of what happened in season one and what happened in the book of Genesis. In fact, the original Hebrew language, the first word of Exodus, and Hebrew being the language that Exodus was originally written in, the first word is and. And these are the names showing that it is meant to be a continuation of Genesis. Um, If there is one thing that has been burned into my memory from middle school and high school English class, it was that you do not start a sentence with and. There there was one teacher in particular uh, at Midland Park High School, Mrs. Wecht. She did actually much to form me in my writing and my love for writing and helping my writing. I can still, all these years later, see her red pen on my essays. It was like her biggest pet peeve. You do not start a sentence with and. Well, if only I knew then what I know now. (laughs) The Holy Spirit inspired an entire book. started with and. What do you think about that, Mrs. Wecht? If there's anybody, (laughs) listen... If there's any students here at Midland Park and Mrs. Wecht is still there, this should not get back to her, okay? (laughs) The most respect to that woman, just saying. And these are the names. So if Exodus is season two, what happened in season one? What happened in Genesis? It's a great question, okay? Here's my two-minute flyover of the book of Exodus. This might not work. I'm sorry, book of Genesis. 
In chapters 1 through 11, you have the account that introduces the whole story of the Bible. God created the world. He creates humans in his own image to be God's representatives in this world. And things go really well for these humans for two chapters. And then it all falls apart in the fall of Adam and Eve when they rebel against the Lord. And and from there, from chapter 3, the Bible kind of shifts. And it shifts to be the story of how a God is redeeming and restoring his fallen creation. Right up until the end. In Genesis chapter 12, God approaches a man named Abram, later to be called Abraham. And that he tells Abraham that he uh, will be the father of a great nation. And this great nation will come from him and his wife and from his family line. And God will bless this nation so that they will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and all the families of the earth. And so it's this kind of dual promise that he gives to Abraham. It's this promise of land and seed. A nation will flow from his family line through his seed. And all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then this nation will dwell in a land that will be marked out by God. And the rest of Genesis from chapter 12 tells the stories of these generations that follow Abraham. Abraham to his son Isaac. Isaac to his son Jacob. And then where Exodus 1 picks up, Jacob has 12 sons that were just listed there for us. But that's kind of a recap because their story is given to us in Genesis. And if there's one thing you realize about this new family that will become a nation, this blessed family chosen by God, is that they're not chosen because they're so awesome and they're so great and they're so righteous. But in choosing them, God will prove to be great even despite them. This family was, in a word, dysfunctional. Some of you are coming out of Christmas. You're newly reminded of some dysfunction in your families. And in all seriousness, we should take heart, right, that God is sovereign over dysfunctional families. And and Joseph is the second youngest of 12 sons of Jacob, and he was the father's favorite son. And so his brothers hated him for it. They were jealous for him. They, They were jealous for their father's love. They did not like that Joseph was clearly being marked out as the favorite son. And so his brothers sell him as a slave to a traveling group of merchants who are on their way to Egypt. And then they stage his death to their dad by putting blood on a cloak and saying, I think an animal ate him. Your family might be dysfunctional, but it's not as dysfunctional as that. And and Joseph gets sent down to Egypt. He's enslaved in Egypt. He's wrongfully imprisoned for 12 years before rising to prominence and becoming the second in command over all of Egypt. This is all in Genesis, all in season one. And when a famine hits the Middle East, where Joseph's family was from, it was Joseph's foresight and leadership in Egypt of storing grain that caused people from all around the world and the region to come to Egypt for food, including his 11 brothers who sold him into slavery. And after Joseph reveals himself, after Joseph forgives his brothers, he brings them and their families all down to Egypt. A total of 70 men, women, and children. You know, after the church today, uh, I'm going to my dad's side of the family. He's doing their extended family Christmas. Um, and there's going to be, I think, between kids and adults, like 60, 65 people there. And it's kind of even telling for me that, like, it's just, we're just one family. 
And, and yet this, this, this whole family that's been kind of chosen and marked out by God is brought down into Egypt, a total of 70. And when his um, brothers kind of sense, like, they, they still kind of fear him. They're like, is this, this is too good to be true. Joseph is setting us up. They were kind of talking, like, this is not going to end well for us. There's no chance he actually can forgive us like this. And then he says in one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20, we'll have it on the screen. He says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is sovereign over all things, even evil. This is important about God. He's not responsible for evil. He's never responsible for evil. But he is sovereign over it. And he uses all things to turn out for good. So that, all of that is in the little three-letter word, and. And. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. That's the context. Number two, the introduction to Exodus. So these seven verses do more than just kind of set the context. They do more than just bridge from Genesis. They kind of tell a story in and of itself. A story that points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just, I know we're familiar with it, but consider how Moses starts this epic book. He names 12 brothers in the opening verses. Takes the time, name by name by name. And then in verse 6, they all die. And then you never hear about them again for the rest of the book. Like, isn't that kind of strange just on the face of it? Like, think about, again, if you're watching a show and you see the introduction and the extended introduction introducing all these different people, and then in a single moment, boom, dead. And they're never going to come up again. Like, what's going on with that? Why does he kind of start it this way? Why does he just kind of start that way and then move on? Here's why. Here's what it tells us. The fact that God is redeeming and restoring his creation through a family of just average, ordinary people tells us more about God than it does the family. Exodus is about God because the Bible is about God. The triune God is the only one in the Bible who does not have a verse that says, and he died, and we turn the page. God is the main character of this book. God is the one we're going to see week in and week out. And it also tells us that, again, this was not a large family, 70 people total, maybe not even as much as on either side of uh, the room downstairs here. Like 70 people are now living in Egypt. They had no power. They had nothing to offer. They could not remain alive in their own land, so they had to come to a new land. They couldn't protect their families, their wives, or children. They had no power. Even Joseph, who's the only one with some power, with his position in Egypt, he's a foreigner himself. You know what that means? It means when he dies, this does not get passed along to his sons. This job is not hereditary. And in verse 6, which is why Moses tells us, verse 6, Joseph died. And so did all the power that was attached to this family name. And as we'll see next week in the following verses, it's going to cause some problems. But here's the main point of this introduction. Here's the main point of the sermon. What made this family special, 
was not their power, was not their gifting, was not their ability. What made them special was their relationship to God. And they had the promises of God on their side. What promises? Well, again, we remember God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to turn his family into a great nation, that he will make them fruitful, and they will multiply, and he's going to give them a land, land and seed. Exodus 1-7, but the people of Israel, this is after everyone dies, but, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Here's the thing about Genesis and Exodus. There's 400 years that happens between them. It's a pretty crazy introduction. That in the span between Genesis and Exodus, this family turned into a great nation over 400 years. This family of 70 turned into a nation, which we're told later, into 1.5 million. Do the math. It's a lot of full nurseries. 400 years, 70 to 1.5 million. And this is a God who keeps his promises to his people. They multiplied and grew, and they filled the land, although it's not the land they were promised, which sets the stage for Exodus. And of the 12 ordinary, very flawed brothers that were listed in the opening verses, the most flawed of all was Judah. Judah, who is not the oldest, but when Joseph came out and they threw him in a pit and they're deciding what to do with him, the oldest says, we can't kill him, and then dad would be upset, and that's Reuben, and then Reuben walks away. We don't even know where Reuben goes. He goes to pick up sticks. And while he's away, Judah is now in charge, and Judah sees this traveling group and goes, okay, we won't kill him. Let's just sell him. And then pretend he died. Judah is the mastermind of Joseph going to Egypt. It's then Judah who, in chapter 38, shamefully wanted to put his own daughter-in-law to death for being pregnant outside of marriage. Until she exposed him as the father of those unborn twins. Read your Bible. It's crazy. And if you're in the Bible reading plan, just prepare yourself for Genesis 38. It's wild. You can't make it up. But you know why? It's because it's real. It happened. Judah was messed up. And it was Judah who received grace and forgiveness from his brother Joseph. A grace that transformed him. A grace that actually had him at one point interceding for another brother who was in trouble and wanted to lay his life down for him. And it would be Judah who, in Genesis 49, his father Jacob, in the blessing all the brothers before he died, said, Judah, it's going to be your family that the Messiah is going to come. God uses broken people, and he transforms them for his glory. And this is a family line that would bring about King David. Heard of him? It would bring about King Solomon. And it would keep tracing ahead a couple thousand years from Judah to this little manger in Bethlehem where a baby was born and they named him Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Jesus, the one who will finally fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through his family line. 
This is what Jesus himself reveals after he dies on the cross and he raises from the grave. He comes upon these two disciples um, on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. And these disciples are all distraught because their leader, Jesus, now has been killed by the Roman Empire. And they're like, what do we do now? We kind of went all in with him. We have nowhere else to go. And the risen Jesus, they don't even recognize him, but he goes up to them. And Luke 24, 27, we're told, quote, And beginning with Moses, meaning the books of Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible is gospel-centered. Everything points to Jesus. And Jesus essentially tells them, in not the same words, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Where the cross was meant for evil, to put to death this threat to their political system, God meant the same death, to be the very means through which the people of God can receive forgiveness of sins. Exodus is a book that speaks of the premier Old Testament event that brings God's people from slavery to freedom. And in every single chapter, it points to the ultimate act of redemption in history Jesus, the greater Moses, who brings God's people from slavery and sin to freedom in Christ through his death and resurrection. And so if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, like that is like the heartbeat of our church and what we want you to know. We want to know him, not just know about him, we want to know him personally and then make him known. And it is the most awesome, it is the most life-changing decision you would ever make. And I want you to know that what makes a Christian special, anybody in here who considers himself a Christian, what makes them special is not them. It's not their gifting. It's not their ability. It's not their moral lifestyle. It's not their political views. What makes a Christian special is their relationship to God. A God who is powerful, who keeps his promises, and who is ever-present with his people. Context of Exodus, introduction to Exodus, and then third and quickly, application of Exodus. I want to give you at the outset, as we start, here are my hopes for us as a church over the next eight to nine months. That we would recognize God's power, that we would cling to God's promises, that we would walk in God's presence. So very quickly, God's power. We are going to confront a powerful God in the book of Exodus. And he's going to flex that power over his creation. And that should give us comfort in knowing today nothing in this world can make God look small. And, and we as humans have been hardwired to marvel at power. We love power. We love displays of power. We love the sheer power of a thunderstorm. We love the sheer power of a whale coming out of the water and smashing back into the ocean. We watch YouTube clips of it all the time. We even love the gentle power of an individual to stand up to a bully in the hallway without force. We are drawn to it. And the only power that can thwart the power in this world is the one who created it. And if this God is for us, who can be against us? And so I pray as we walk through Exodus that it will, it will increase your assurance in the power of the gospel. For as Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, this world loves power. And, and this world defines power in the way people take from others. 
If I have power, I can take from you. But God's power is measured by not what he takes, but what he gives. Namely, the most powerful thing he did was the power to salvation, giving his one and only son to die for those who would believe in him. True power in this world, do not be mistaken, is what you give, not what you take. Number two, God's promise, that we would cling to God's promise. Um, When someone makes a promise to you, what do you do? You immediately gauge who's giving me the promise. You gauge a promise based on what? The promise maker. Okay, if my son tells me, or if I tell my son, I promise I will play the card game Sleeping Queens with you once all the other babies go to bed. I hope his confidence in that is stronger than my confidence in a politician who promises to get America back on track. It's 2020, guys. It's just cultivating the ground for you, okay? Like, it's coming. It's coming. But here's what we do. Somebody tells us a promise. We don't think about the promise. We think about the promise maker. And promises are only as strong as the ones making them, and nothing is more applicable to our lives than clinging to the promises of God. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That he will work out all things for good. That he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. That nothing can snatch you out of his hand. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. And I wonder as we begin a new year, what promises of God do you need to be reminded of this morning? What fears are making you anxious right now? What's keeping you up at night? Where is your joy being threatened? What promises of God do you need to be reminded of this morning? And no matter how difficult your situation is, and I do not doubt, in fact, I know that many of your situations are paralyzing, but no circumstance in this world cancels out God's promises. And all of their promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. Number three, and lastly, God's presence. That we would walk in God's presence. If God's power and God's promises are kind of these big picture things to keep in mind of who we are and whose we are, God's presence is our inheritance that we can cash in right now every single day. In all things, God is with us. And God chooses, he initiates, he chooses to dwell with his people, to guide, to lead, to equip us, to glorify him. Uh, And the whole kind of story of Exodus really tells us God saves us for his glory. Amen? It's his glory he's after. It's his his namesake he's protecting. And then he empowers us to live for that glory. And the whole book shows us from the beginning of the actual Exodus event to the very end that the book of Exodus ends with a tabernacle and specific instructions of how to build it, what to do in it. Why? Because it's there that God will be present with his people where they will worship him all of their days. You know, the way we know that we're experiencing God's presence is in our worship of him. It's not in how well our life is going. It's not in how prosperous your life is. That's not whether or not you experience the presence of God. The presence of God is based upon your worship of him to the praise of his glorious grace. To know Jesus is to worship. To, know, to worship is to follow. To follow him is to be in his presence. So nothing in your life is apart from him. So your marriage in 2020, he is there. 
Your, your singleness in 2020, he is there. Your pain, he's there. Your joy, he's there. To quote Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Nine months in the book of Exodus. I couldn't be more excited and pumped for it. We're going to recognize God's power together. We're going to cling to his promises together. And we're going to walk in his presence together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every aspect of it points to the same story. That you were redeeming and restoring your creation. That you were saving us for your glory. That you were freeing us to live for you. And Father, even now as we prepare to take communion to conclude the service, as we prepare to start a new year by breaking bread together, that we would see it as such an opportunity to dwell in who you are, dwell in what you've done for us, what you have freed us into. Father, let your power be made known to us this morning. Give us the courage to cling to your promises. And give us the ability to walk in your presence for our joy and your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.